0: Hello and welcome to 20 to One, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks, and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So it's my pleasure to introduce James Turner. James is the current CEO of the Sutton Trust, the UK's leading social mobility foundation, and has recently been appointed as the HG Foundation's first CEO, a role he'll be taking on fully in the next few months. James has over 18 years experience working in the charity and education sectors, having previously been deputy CEO of the Trust's sister charity, the Education Endowment Foundation, or EEF. He's led the Trust's £135 million bid to set up the EEF in 2011, was his interim CEO, and then served as a founding trustee. James is also a trustee of the Centre for Homelessness Impact and a governor of a comprehensive school in the East Midlands where he lives. But I've also had the great pleasure of working with James on a number of projects while I was co chair of the Sutton Trust Alumni Leadership Board. And even through all of his achievements, It's his wonderful character that stands above it all. James, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for asking me. I feel very lucky to be in such great company. James, you've been at the helm of the Southern Trust since February 2019, and you've been fully involved in a number of different projects since then. Now, with this in mind, I think there's no better person to ask this question what does social mobility mean to you and what makes the Southern Trust approach to advancing social mobility so unique? Yeah, I mean, it's a very topical question at present because, of course, last
1: week we had Catherine Burble Singh, the Social Mobility Commissioner talking about, you know, has there been too much focus on these sort of rags to riches stories? We've had people saying, do you mean social mobility or is it actually social justice? How does it all relate to the leveling up agenda, which of course is on everyone's lips? And, and so I've given this a lot of thought because obviously it's been driving everything the trust has done and everything I've done in, in, in my career. And I think when you boil it down, what it comes to, whatever terminology you put around it, is just that very simple principle that every young person should have the opportunity to make the most of their talents and aspirations. And that shouldn't be tied to the school you happen to go to, where you happen to live, how wealthy your parents are. So it's that really simple thread that I think we've always tried to make the guiding light of the trust work. And obviously, you can take it off in lots of different directions. And the trust work works, as you know better than anyone, Josiah, works on many fronts of research, policy programs, different age groups. But that really simple principle is the anchor, I think. So what I've I've been trying to do in my career and all my great colleagues have been trying to do. And I think sometimes these other debates about which group is more needy than another, which group is more worthy than another, should we call it something else, a lot of that for me is is froth around the edges and actually it's distracting from the work we're all trying to do. And so we describe our work as social mobility, but if we call ourselves the um, levelling up foundation, you know, the suite of things we do would be much the same.
0: That's incredibly interesting, actually, because it's trying to pass through the noise and provide a very clear view as to the agenda, which is simply about making sure that young people have access to the opportunities that are commensurate to their talents. So in that sense, then, what do you think are the benefits that are associated with providing young people those opportunities and how do we get there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why we should be concerned about low social
1: mobility in the UK. And again, let's set aside all the arguments about whether we're right at the bottom, are we in the middle? You know, it could, social mobility could definitely be better in this country in terms of breaking that link between where you've come from and where you're going. So I think the reason we should care about it is, you know, a, a lot of what drives me, certainly in my early career, was just the sort of fairness argument, you know, the social argument. Part of a democracy, a liberal democracy, part of the sort of social contract we all have is that you should be given a shot to make the most of your talents. You should be given that chance if you work hard to get ahead and you shouldn't be held back. So that's just a fairness thing that's just something that we should all want in our society but i guess what we've found at the trust and i think this has been a, a part of the developing narrative on social mobility which has been really strong is that there is you know an economic case for it as well you know e- even if you set aside those fairness arguments the idea that as a company as an employer as a business as the judiciary as a med- as journalist or whatever you should just fish in a very narrow talent pool. Now, whether that's uh, the talent pool of the 7% of young people who go to private school, whether that's the talent pool of the the 20% of people who who go to grammar schools, leafy comprehensives and and, and independent schools, you know, I, I don't know. But we should be looking for talent everywhere. And it is everywhere. You know, all the certain trust work and the work of other organizations in this space shows that there are brilliant young people who are given the chance will do exceptionally well. And if we get those young people into great careers, then it's good for productivity, it's good for the economy, those companies will make better decisions, the judiciary will reflect society, the newspapers will reflect the concerns of all sections of society and won't just talk about things that matter to an elite. So there's really strong economic arguments as well as as fairness arguments. And in terms of what we can do about it, We at the Trust have focused on education as a key lever to social mobility, which is undoubtedly the case, and also that transition into work as well, because we know that even if you get the education right, if you're from a more disadvantaged background, you don't necessarily then have those same sort of labor market outcomes. You don't necessarily then go and do the same in the world of work. So we're focused on education and those employment opportunities you know, through networks, internships, work experience, skills building, all of those things. But of course, that's just one slice of the social mobility picture. And it can feel a bit paralyzing sometimes because social mobility is affected by what the economy is doing, what the labour market doing, what housing policy is doing, what welfare is doing. And that can, you know, where do you start? And you have to start somewhere. And that, again, has been a guiding light of the work of the trust. You can't do everything. We can't boil the ocean. But where can we make a difference? Let's just cut through and try to do that
0: as best we can. You've chosen education as the sort of that slice that you focus on. And what makes education so powerful? Why has the Southern Trust chosen that particular slice as opposed to all the other? Well, we saw,
1: and this is the you know, the vision of our of our founder, Sir Peter Lample, who's still very, you know, still our chairman, very generous donor to the trust and and guides a lot of what we do he spotted when he came back to the UK in the 90s that there was a gap there in education that there was untapped talent that was there and he could see how by making some changes we could get access to that talent so as well as believing it to be a powerful driver of social mobility I think the opportunity has to be there you know can you affect change in a particular area and there was a particular opportunity in education and i think that's why we've continued to focus on education and also what employees are doing particularly the recruitment stage is that maybe it's not the biggest driver of social mobility we certainly think it's up there but maybe it's not the biggest one but it is something that you can start to get your arms around it is something you can start to tackle all kids are in school and education and training till they're 18 now so you have that gathered field you have them Either in colleges or schools or training providers. So you can get at them and you can do something. Some of these other issues, you know, what's happening in the macroeconomic environment, you know, way beyond what we as a trust can impact. So it's about, you know, the evidence that it is a driver of social mobility combined with that opportunity to make a difference.
0: It sounds from a lot of what you're saying that education appears to have a powerful impact in driving um, the opportunities available for young people. And it it sounds in many ways, when you talk about the levelling up agenda, that it's all about making sure that through education, all of a sudden, young people are not disadvantaged by their economic or socioeconomic backgrounds. In that sense, is it right to say that social mobility is just a fairer form of meritocracy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think the idea of social mobility and, and meritocracy are quite closely aligned in a socially mobile society, what your parents did, how wealthy you were, wouldn't matter. What would shine through is your hard work and your talents, you know, your natural talents, but also the talents you develop through an education system. And that's why we need a fair education system so that those things can be fostered fairly throughout society. And if you have that happening, you're in a meritocracy because those with strengths rise to the top. Now, I don't think that in itself is where we you know we should leave it. That certainly will be something we want to see much more at the Sutton Trust. The idea that people can rise up the social ladder based on their own strengths. One of the problems with a meritocracy, people will say, is that if people do feel they're in a meritocracy, those towards the bottom of the rung, you know, some people at the top will say, "Well, you deserve to be there." You know, I've got to where I am not through the fact I was born with a silver spoon, that you know, because I am brilliant. You're at the bottom for a reason. And I don't think we want to live in that sort of society either. We want to live in a society where at all different rungs, people have the chance to move up and they all have decent lives, the chance to live fulfilling lives. And actually, that's what comes out a lot of the levelling up agenda. And this is, I think, where Catherine Burble-Singh was speaking about last week, is that I would certainly say it is important for society that whoever is in that top rung of the ladder that doesn't matter because they are influential. It should reflect society. And the people in those posts are hugely influential in what, what happens to the rest of us. But actually, when you talk to people about leveling up, there's some pretty basic things they want. They want good housing. They want decent schools for their kids. They want good high streets. They want to be able to go on holiday once or twice a year. They want financial security. And I don't think we should say those things aren't important because you haven't risen right up to the top. I think it's It would mean different things to different people, depending on their talents, their aspirations, where they want to go.
0: So then as a principle of operation, would you say that meritocracy is something worth promoting, worth pursuing? And is the UK a meritocratic society?
1: I mean, I think with the caveats
0: I said about some of
1: the downsides of a purely meritocratic system, if we ever get there, which I think is a big question. You know, Of course, the idea of that meritocracy is something that we would say at the Trust we should be pursuing. I mean, I am hopeful that we're closer, despite some of the social mobility data and the fact that there is still this, particularly with the pandemic, this relatively depressing prognosis of what might happen to social mobility. I think that the narrative has changed a lot, particularly in the last 10 years about talent and how we find it and how we support young people from more diverse backgrounds to do well so i do think we're on that pathway to becoming more meritocratic but you know you just have to look around at some of the big inequalities in our system to realize we're not there you know, despite all the progress and all the investment has been made and really hard work that's been undertaken you look at Russell Group universities, they don't represent society. That's not solely the fault of the Russell Group universities at all. It's through a whole range of inequalities earlier down in the system, which need addressing. And then you look, you know, again, if you look at, as we did with our Elitist Britain report a couple of years ago, the people who are at that very top of our society, and as I say, are so important because they are so influential, do not look anything like society at large. That will take time to change. But I think until we can say that the top of society as a barometer for what's happening throughout society looks more representative in all sorts of ways, socioeconomically, but in other ways, other important diversity attributes too, I don't think we can say we're in a meritocracy.
0: How long do you think that it will take for the top level of society to change? You know, the, the problem with the sort of social mobility data is that
1: there is always a lag, you know, because you're talking about what are kids in the system going to do when they are 20, 30, 40 at the peak of their sort of earnings career or whatever. So you're looking at these intermediate things You know, how well they're doing in education. Are they getting into universities? Are they taking great apprenticeships? Those sorts of things. So there's always going to be that sort of generational lag. But then you look at some of those intermediate outcomes and the work we're involved in, and lots of other great charities and schools, and you think about you know, some of the law firms we work with or some of the accountancy firms we, we work with, the strides they have made to try to become more socioeconomically diverse, to open up their intakes. Some of them have even said in 10, 15 years or so we want a third or whatever of our partners to be from working class backgrounds, that will start to make a difference. And I think the key thing we think is we can't take our foot off the gas. You know, if we do, it's slow going, it's hard work. If we lose the focus on it, because there's a sense that actually, yeah, you know, this sort of thing, this is old new social mobility, let's move on to the next thing. Everything that we know from the research will show that the sharp elbow, the well-resourced will reassert their position, which is already a better position than everybody else
0: in society. So we need to keep plugging away at this, but it does take a long time. I think that's a great call to arms, right, to maintain the focus and maintain the agenda because of how important and impactful that it will be on on so many lives, especially of those of the next generation. And so when you look at this government today and you look at what they're doing in terms of the levelling up agenda, especially for young people, do you think that a good job is being done and what can be done to improve? Well, I think the sentiment behind levelling up, it's been overused,
1: I think, but the, the phrase that often is associated with it talent is everywhere but opportunity is not we, we could have written that talked about that 10 15 years ago but the sentiment has to be absolutely the right thing there are parts of the country where opportunity is far too low in a particular social mobility cold spot so to to have that focus on fair opportunity and to have it place-based i think does make a, a lot of sense i think everybody really is w- waiting to see you know what exactly does leveling up mean you know if you ask different experts, different people. They have different opinions. The extent to which it features education, I think, is still something that we need to see. I mean, there are these new education investment areas which are welcome, but we also know there's a lot of deprivation outside of those areas. So what is the solution for those? And then, of course, riding straight through all of that, you've had the pandemic, which has been the biggest In all sorts of respects, but in our world of education, it's been the biggest thing that's happened for decades and decades. And we have been very vocal in thinking that we need more. This government should put in more resources to pandemic recovery. My ex boss, Sir Kevin Collins, at the Education Endowment Foundation, the government's own czar appointed to advise on what education recovery should look like, recommended fifteen billion depending on what figures you look at, it's something like two, three, four billion the government have currently invested. Now, I don't quite know where on that spectrum it is, but we're definitely closer to the 15 billion than we are to where the government is. And it's short-term not to invest in this stuff because we know that better social mobility leads to better productivity, has GDP benefits. But also, once young people get behind, it's very hard to then change their trajectory. So the more we invest in them now rather than remedial stuff later on, the better. So I think the pandemic and getting that recovery is right. And then let's move on to
0: this leveling up agenda, which is
1: so important.
0: I think a lot of young people will resonate with that, especially if they've been significantly impacted by the pandemic. And there is a real need in light of what we see today for much more investment to be made. And I see you speak quite strongly on this issue, clearly, because you're well versed in the realities for a lot of young people. But I'm actually quite curious to go back 18 years with you and to sort of figure out what made you th- go into the, the education sector, the charity sector, and, and think that this was was something that you wanted to spend, I guess, a large part of your your career on.
1: Well, I think it's a, a good example of probably what we tell our own young people not to do, which is I didn't really have a plan or a clear aspiration. I'd done various things a few years since I graduated and had this vague sense, really, that I wanted to do something worthwhile. I think, actually, I was quite naive in some respects on the um, impact, actually, that business and for-profit could have on this agenda. I was seeing it in very sort of simple terms. And at that stage, a certain trust was four people. And I wasn't particularly interested in education, to be honest with you. You know, I had, I'd had my own experience of going from a comprehensive school, but it was a relatively leafy comprehensive school to Oxbridge and had seen some of those inequalities and was very interested in all sorts of areas of social policy. So we're looking, was looking for jobs in those areas. And then the certain trust was for people. And then it just had this incredible journey of growth. And I've been lucky to be part of that. So. It sort of set me fair for eighteen years because of the growth of this amazing organization led by this amazing man, Sir Peter Lample. And it was very fortuitous that I, you know, I could easily have taken a job in another four person charity, which would have done some great things, I am sure, but it wouldn't have had this same impact on me and given me all the chances I could. So there's a lot of good fortune in in where I've ended up. But um I wouldn't now want to leave that space of education and social mobility because it means so much to me now, And obviously I've
0: learned a lot over those 18 years. And what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've had during that time? I mean, it's clearly had such an impact on you that you, you don't want to leave. <laughs> I mean, the, the importance of the relentlessness of talking
1: about these things when you've been around, and I'm sure you know, people see this in all different walks of life and in their professional lives, but over my 18 years, you see the pendulum swing back and forth. And it can be quite dispiriting sometimes because you think, well, hold on, we had this conversation six or seven years ago, this path was chosen, but now we're going back and reopening all of those, those arguments. And it, and it can be quite demoralising because you think, have we actually made any progress? But then... I think the power of an organisation like the Trust, and so again, some of the other great organisations working in this space, is that they have this life beyond the parliament. We're we're talking about stuff on a 20, in our case, 25-year time horizon and have that corporate knowledge. And there's a real power, I think, of just the relentlessness of making the same (laughs) points, albeit adapting it to a new context, a new government, maybe calling it levelling up rather than social mobility, whatever it does. But those things do make a difference. And drawing on that hinterland, you just never know when one of those things is going to get through and it'll be that breakthrough moment. And we've had several of those at the Trust. And that is worth all the pendulum swinging backwards and forth than all the sort of groundhog days you have. And I'm sure you know the Trust will continue to do this uh, because it just has that great body of research, but also the practical experience
0: of working with over 50,000 brilliant young people over the years. When you look at those experiences of you know those fifty thousand young people, I'm sure they all feel incredibly indebted to the work that the Southern Trust has put into them. I myself, also being an alum and being someone who has experienced the great benefits of of the summer school program, but I want to take it back a little bit to your experience growing up and you know the fact that you went to a comprehensive school then off off to the Oxbridge. What was life like f- for you making that transition? What inequalities or issues did you see and and how have you felt that that has impacted your day-to-day job leading the trust? Yeah I mean I'm always at pains, I think here to say that I I just think
1: I came from a, a pretty normal ordinary background so I wouldn't want to say I'm disadvantaged because I don't want to do an injustice to those who genuinely are you know my mum and dad didn't go to university but we were financially secure they were loving I went to my local primary school and went to a C of E comp in the, in the sort of next big town from us, which did occasionally send people to Oxford. It wasn't, I don't think, an annual occurrence. I think I was only one of two in my sixth form that year. But it wasn't as extraordinary a journey as some of the young people... That we support, and I always must remind myself of that when I talk about my own experience. But even so, even though I would say I came from a, a normal background, I did find that transition to university, but particularly to Cambridge, hard. I mean, I went to a college, Churchill College, which is a great college, big state school intake. That's one of the reasons I picked it. But looking back, my choices were pretty random. I, I happened to study English because my English teacher said, "Hey, you're pretty good at it. Why don't you apply for Oxford?" It hadn't occurred to me that I would do that until she said it. Um, I didn't really know anything about the colleges. I think I missed my, you know, the open days or whatever at Cambridge and so just looked at, you know, one of the biggest state school intakes. I'm from a state school. Maybe that will be some indication that I'll fit in. But when I got there, incredibly supportive, tutors. the two things that struck me was, one, I found the academics very difficult compared to my A-level studies. I mean, it's a cliche, but going from being one of the best in your A-level classes to being... What I felt was probably one of the worst people ever to study English at Cambridge. <laughs> Sorry, my tutors may well agree with me. Um, and then, even then, I noticed the social difference. I mean, I was, you know, as I say, not disadvantaged at all, just sort of a, a, an ordinary student. But you know, you, you came across some incredibly privileged people, many of whom, of course, were very nice. But it was a whole new world. I hadn't, re- I hadn't really been exposed to, and that was that planted the seed. I think, which was reactivated when I saw the job at the certain Trust about, I mean, if I'm finding this difficult, what does the young person who's doesn't know anyone who's been to university, whose school's never sent anyone to a Russell Group university, let alone to uh, an Oxford or a Cambridge college, what must that transition be like? I went to Cambridge in 97. So this was about the time Peter was setting up the certain Trust, actually. And there was some work going on but there wasn't loads of access and outreach work and there wasn't as much acknowledgement of these
0: issues as there is today things have changed a lot i think since since 97 when i went and that's quite encouraging actually in many ways because i think what it's shown is that over this 25 year period that it is possible to change The narrative around a particular agenda and from your experiences and now to the experiences of young people we're seeing much more being done and many more young people being served in in the right and the proper way i think that's quite exciting and maybe drawing away from that and going into a little bit about your specific career journey because you've sort of led different organizations along the way and been involved in quite significant and important projects, especially within this space. And there might be some young people who are looking at you and your career and thinking, I would love to be just like James Turner. So what were some of the roads that you had to go down and some of the choices you had to make as you became more and more senior in the world of of the charity and the education sector?
1: I think the first thing, particularly for a young person who doesn't quite know what to do, and I was definitely that young person, is is, is don't be afraid. I mean, it, it's easy to say, but hard to do, you know, particularly when you graduate. You want some financial security. You might be worried about your debt or whatever, particularly these days. I was lucky enough not to have any any student debt. But I think don't worry about trying a few things for those. You know, you've got a long career ahead of you. <laughs> particularly when you know the retirement age seems to be going up all the time we'll be working till we're in our 70s or whatever (laughs) um you know the the, the first three or four years i did all sorts of things uh, which in fact all proved really useful actually so i was a paralegal because i was thinking of becoming a lawyer and actually that has been really useful in terms of running an organization and being familiar with legal documents then i worked as a civil servant in the charity commission and that gave me a great overview of the charity sector which i didn't know at that stage i'd actually end up working in it was just a civil service job and I worked just in an admin role really at, here in Millbank Tower actually for the Labour Party during the Tony Blair second election win and again it was a very sort of lowly role but just giving me a bit of exposure to those things so even though I didn't have any any sense that these things were gelled together in some sort of coherent game plan all of those things I've drawn on in my career but then, you know, for me, it was just so lucky to get that break to get into the trust, which was a growing organisation, because growing organisations provide opportunities. And it's very hard when you're starting out in your career to be able to spot those. But there are some things, you know, the the, the nature of the trustee body, who's driving it, is the agenda going forward, which it certainly was in terms of social and and education. So that was a good indication that this was a great place to sort of start my career proper, because that's what it felt like to me. This was, this was where I was going to start. I'd probably do for the rest of my working life. But there's a lot of luck. And the one regret or big reflection I have, which I say to a lot of young people when they want to get into the charity world, is this, it, it's, it's not like law or consultancy or being a medic or an architect. There's not a set career path. The sector is very, very diverse. There are some graduate programs, but they're few and far between. So you're not going to have that career mapped out for you. And actually, there's a lot of benefit, and I see it happen quite a lot, of people jumping into the charity sector later. So I don't be too sort of proud or dismissive of actually doing something in the corporate world first. And I was a little bit naive, and and, as I said at the beginning, and idealistic about this, I think, actually. Mm -hmm. But had I not got the break of the trust, to do five years or so as a lawyer, or five years as a management can sort of not sure I'd have passed any of these selection processes, but in theory, <laughs> to do those things, and then to jump in to the sector and bring those expertise. I think that's a great way sometimes to tread that line between wanting to get into the, the not-for-profit sector, which is by its nature quite unstructured and can be quite haphazard, while also giving yourself a little bit of security, a little bit of structure, and a little bit of direction to your career.
0: That's incredibly useful advice, actually. And I think a lot of people who are thinking about maybe joining an NGO or, or maybe having a career in the charity sector at some point will think very clearly about those choices and a career elsewhere could also be very, very useful. And, and it sounds like actually the things that you learned elsewhere early on in your career have had a huge impact as to, you know, how you manage all your day to day to today. And I'm sort of thinking about your day-to-day today and, and, you know, what is life like for the CEO of the Sutton Trust? What, what do you sort of get up to? What does your typical day or typical week look like? It's a very apposite uh, question um, as I reflect back on my
1: time there. But but also, of course, you know, I I started as CEO a year or so before the pandemic struck. So it's felt like a very untypical CEO ship, but then maybe they all do. This is my first experience (laughs) of being a CEO. But I suppose the, and I think this is particularly, I mean, the the, the Trust is an organization now of about 40 people. We've grown quite a bit and we spend six, seven million pounds a year. So we're not a huge charity, but we try to get as much bang for buck out of of what we do spend. And also as, as much of the money and the resource going to our projects and going to young people as opposed to keeping it here in the center. So it's not a huge infrastructure, but what it does have is lots of different work streams. So you have, you know, we're trying to cover everything from early years through to access to professions. So you have all of those different policy areas, you know, what's happening in schools, what's happening in apprenticeships, what's happening in the early years, what's happened um, in higher education. Plus, you have different approaches. So we conduct research and policy work, as you you know, we try to be strong on communications. But we also run programs which now reach um, 8,000 people. So as CEO, you've got that very um, having to bounce between all of those things. Um, and luckily, I've got a brilliant colleagues who are excellent in their own fields. But you have to sort of try to knit it together and make sure they are all getting different attention. And so, so, so in some, some parts of the year... My day will be wholly focused on research and policy because it's an important white paper. We've got a we've got a report coming out on other days. You know, we're gearing up to, to programs, and so most of my time will be spent on supporting that team, getting the budgets right, getting the fundraising in place as well. So it's a bit of a cliche, but there is not a typical day. But as I'm sure anybody in you know, a sort of a relatively senior post would say. It's just that ability to switch and to have the bandwidth to be one moment looking in quite a lot of detail with your finance finance director about a budget. Then you have to think about what is our policy recommendation going to be when we meet the Secretary of State next week or whatever to talk about apprenticeships policy for example so it's trying to balance all of those things and i find myself thinking of myself a little bit as a a jack of all trades and master or none you need to know a little bit about lots of things i think like everybody you wish you knew more on all of those things but there just isn't isn't time And, and i guess the other different thing i think we have here at the trust is we have uh sir peter who is executive chairman and founder. So again, you have that additional level of support CEO with someone who's very knowledgeable, very engaged. And so it's not as lonely, I suspect, as some CEO posts, because you do have that, you
0: have a great senior team, and then you have Peter there as well. It sounds like a very exciting job that you're doing, and, and certainly at the forefront of driving out a really important agenda on the national front. So I, I sort of wish I had your job in many, in many ways. Um, but looking, looking at your time now and, and reflecting on what you've done over the last twenty odd years or, or so, and especially looking, reflecting on your time at the trust, what would you say are your biggest learnings, your biggest reflections? What for you? Are the things that you you take away and hold very dearly to yourself as a sort of a reflection of the last couple of of years?
1: When I think about my time at the trust, I get I guess the three or four things that just really because um, I've been in a very reflective mood as you can imagine after you know leaving after so long. The things that you know really I think are big successes of, of the trust have been putting social mobility on the map we didn't do it single-handedly but when i joined i didn't when i joined the trust i didn't even i'm pretty sure use the term social mobility in my interview no people weren't really talking about it now it's everywhere you know you could argue it's overused and we're having a reaction against it but i think just that consciousness that no university now will not have an access program no corporate worth its um, soul would do an unpaid internship, for example. All of these things are quite big changes that have happened. Now, do they change, which hopefully will lead to concrete change, but just the mood music around this whole debate, I think the trust has had a central role in putting that forward. And it's been that relentlessness and that research and that practical work that's done that. So that's one of the things I think we're really proud of. The two things I'm most proud of professionally would be helping to set up the Education Endowment Foundation. I mean, again, you know, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. But I'm at least one of the people who can be, I think, credited for helping to get get that off the ground. And the impact that's had on the school system and the richness now of the evidence base out there for teachers to use, which sounds quite dry, but actually it's absolutely at the heart of making teachers giving teachers the advice and the guidance and the research they need to do the best possible job in the classroom. And that could be then transformative. That has been so important. I just think that has been a huge cultural shift in the last 10 years. And so very proud of that. And then, you know, I'm really proud of the way our programs have grown. But the one I was, again, with with, with us was very involved in setting up, which is 10 years old now, is the, is the US program. And it is, for me, it just typifies the Sutton Trust because, you know, we saw that There were these amazing opportunities out there for kids to go to the like, well, Ivy League universities, great liberal arts colleges, but very few kids from the sort of backgrounds we were interested in were doing it. And there were loads of people who said, why this isn't going to work. It's a waste of time. It's a distraction. It's a niche project. But, you know, we did it, you know, with our great partners at the Fulbright Commission. And in those 10 years, over 500 young people from poor, low, moderate income, state school backgrounds, have now gone to some amazing US universities with great amounts of financial aid, which means they come out with no debt, and have had stellar careers. And we're lucky enough to have at least one of them working back here with us, and many on our alumni board as well. And so as, a, as, a, as, as typifying what the Sutton Trust is about and the impact we've had, I mean, those the achievements of these young people stand on their own. But just being the oil in the wheels to make that happen is it's something that i'm hugely proud of and i think really goes to the heart of what the certain trust is about that's
0: wonderful and i think a lot of young people will, will feel the impact it can be quite incredible to see the work that has been done by Sun Trust and how that's evolved over time, and you know your hand and your involvement in making that happen will be a, a very much a lasting contribution, I'm sure, for the next generation and the next CEO who comes in and, and tries to emulate and and what you've done, which I'm which I'm sure will be very difficult, I, I think, in in the grand scheme of things. But as you step away now and you go off and, and sort of take on another challenging role within the tech space, for example what do you see as the future of social mobility where, where are we going what is the next outcome for the next 25 years at least in your view i think the big concern i suppose i have which i mentioned
1: before and i talked about these pendulums swinging back and forth something's in favor then something goes out of favor because it has been talked about so much but we would say in some ways so little has changed that there's a danger that people just get fatigued by the idea, and we're seeing this. we have seen this a little bit already in terms of you know we don't want to talk about bright kids from poor backgrounds going to Oxbridge anymore. We've talked about that. Well, we have, but actually there's still far too few going. Um, if when you look at the population, so I think a really important thing that we all in the social mobility space need to do at the trust in my new role is just make sure the case for this the unfairness, the economic case, why it's so important, it remains centre stage because I, I worry otherwise that it will be lost. And there's a there's a sense which isn't backed up by any of the data that's sort of you know, done deal, let's move on. So that's, I think, really important. And then one of the things I think really struck me from the research we did for our 25th anniversary, and the Trust will be doing stuff in this area, and I know in, in my new role I hope to be as well, is also thinking about those who, who don't go to university and those young people who take vocational routes, which again, you know, it's again, it's a bit of a cliche, but they have been underserved. But I think there's really interesting opportunities around apprenticeships. I think what vocational and technical education looks like in a labor market that is changing so rapidly and there are lots of jobs for example in tech which didn't exist 10 years ago and the pathways into them could be quite different from a traditional pathways. I think thinking about that other half and how that other half intersects with the, the half that do go to university I think is a really important sort of frontier of social mobility and takes you into territory not just about social mobility for those who are 16, 17, 18, graduating at 21. But what does social mobility also mean for people in jobs in industries that are declining? How do we upskill them so they can take advantage of some of these new opportunities? And so I think it's about keeping the focus and the message really clear. But it is right, I think, to broaden out the narrative a bit more and make sure we do focus on some of these groups for whom the the gains are
0: potentially even bigger than the group we have we we have worked with in the past i think those are those are really powerful words and as we come to the end of the podcast uh, i think it would be nice to hear your i guess your final words in terms of what pieces of advice what piece of advice would you have for young people who come from non-privileged disadvantaged backgrounds who want to make the best of their talents and don't have the opportunities what do you think that they can do to contribute to our society i would say to them and again
1: it's an easy thing to say and hard to do is just believe in the strengths of your talents you know all the research that we've done over 25 years all the experience we've had working with over 50,000 young people i am in no shadow of a doubt that Every young person from a working class, low, moderate income home, there is as much talent in that population as there is in any other part of society. So just believe that and don't let anyone tell you otherwise and don't diminish your expectations, your aspirations as a result of it. So have that self-belief. And obviously, you know, schools, colleges, organizations like us will do as much as we can to help you build that. But I suppose the other thing I would say, which I think is a reason to be hopeful is, as I say, the mood music is changing, I think, even if it's not translating into as much as action. But I've, you know, I've dealt with hundreds of people working at universities, employers, politicians, almost to a person, they have wanted to find talent. And they haven't want to discriminate against those from socioeconomic, uh, the disadvantaged backgrounds. They just don't necessarily have the tools or know how to access them or what the best way is to support these groups. So I guess I, I think the wind is, you know, people will want you to succeed. So believe in yourself and believe that other people want you to succeed as well. Because over my 18 years, I've met very, very few people who don't believe in this mission. It's how we realize it, how we make it concrete, but the sentiment that, going back to where where we started, that every young person should be able to fill their
0: talents and aspirations regardless of background. That's very, very widely held. Thank you so much, James. That was incredibly useful and a, a real insight into what we can do to make the UK a fairer place for our young people. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Josiah. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20to1.com. And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.